Okay, here we are with Gender Trouble, and today we have Adrian Laurier, who is uh, from Albuquerque, and uh, and Adrian is the uh, head of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, which has lots of programs, and, and Adrian is down here to do a program up at Western New Mexico University called Transgender 101, and this is Adrian. Hi, Susan. I'm so glad to be here. Thank you for having me today. I'm really proud to be the co-director of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, and I think a lot of folks don't know that there is a Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, so it's always exciting to help get that word out. We're amazed that there are not a lot of agencies like us around the country. What we're doing is still very groundbreaking, which we didn't mean to be, but we, we still are at this stage, relatively without a lot of peers. At our center, we do a huge scope of stuff, so that makes us a little bit different from some of the other trans programs in other parts of the country. We have kind of three main areas to our work right now. We do education, like we're going to do at the university this afternoon. Transgender 101 is definitely our our premier program, although we have other trainings available too. We've done the Trans 101 at least 600 times all over the state in every region of the state, and we keep going. Yeah. The second piece of our work is advocacy work, right? So on the individual level, we help people come out at school or work, or we go to their doctor's appointments or name change hearings, whatever type of individual help they need. We've helped people talk to their families, whatever kind of assistance folks need. And then we also do kind of bigger policy level advocacy. So we've been working with the Albuquerque Public School District for years now trying to get model trans student policy implemented there. And the Santa Fe Public School District, I think, is actually about to do it and be the first ones to do it. Wow, that's Um, that's great. We're working with the Department of Corrections right now to write better policy for trans folks who are incarcerated in prisons in the state. So it's kind of big overarching advocacy and then very individual level advocacy as well. And then the third piece to our work is that we have an actual drop-in center in Albuquerque. We have a physical location. And at our drop-in, we provide a, a really wide array of programs and services from very basic things like food. We know that there are folks who come to see us who don't eat unless they come to the center to eat that day. Yeah, that's one of the problems with a lot of trans people, especially young trans people, their families uh, kick them out of the home. And exactly, they, right. Or they can't get work and they find themselves on the streets. Exactly, and that's a lot of the folks that we serve at our drop-in. So we have even things like bus passes that we give away for folks. We have clothing that's been donated so that we can give it for free. We have a licensed mental health counseling. We have legal assistance, employment search assistance. And then we have about now eight or nine different support groups that meet all throughout the month. So we have two groups in Santa Fe. We've just started a group in Las Cruces that's met about four or five times now. And then we have about six different groups in Albuquerque that meet all throughout the month for different portions of our communities. Yeah, that's really great. And I want to talk about all those things in depth, but let's talk about you. Tell us a little bit about, uh, I assume you're out. (laughs) That's right. And so tell us uh, a little bit about being a trans man. What does that mean? And what is a a person who's a trans man? Sure. Uh, Because the public tends to think of trans people as going from male to female, and so they're, they don't realize that half of us, half of us trans people are, and I use trans a lot, as, a, as but it's just a shortcut for transgender. That's right. Somewhere on the transgender spectrum. And so talk a little bit about coming out when you're a child and how you got to be where you're at. So for me, I was born in 1970. I'm 45. I'm from the South, which means oh not my. down here, but yeah. actually Dixie, right? <laughs> I'm a white person, so I was really just brought up in the dominant culture in the in the southeastern United States. I knew that I was a boy when I was two, so in our in our terminology, I was assigned female at birth. So based on my body, when I was born, the folks in the room at the time said the baby's a girl. But as soon as I knew I was a person, as soon as I knew I was a human being, I knew that I was male. In my case, that was still pretty early on in our history, as you know. So in 1972, when I tried to tell my parents I'm a boy, they basically just disagreed. They said, you're not a boy. Don't say that. You're a girl. Deal with it, you know. But I think in our culture in the United States, 
we still are dealing with a, a frightening, overwhelming amount of misogyny. I think our culture does not respect women and, in fact, does violence to women all the time. So for me, as a young kid, I was more or less allowed to be myself because I was what they would have called a tomboy. Yeah. Right. And being a masculine kid, we uplift that experience way more than we do the experience of a feminine child, yeah, especially it's a lot easier to be a tomboy than it is to be a sissy. And exactly. I'm afraid I was a crybaby and a sissy and I had a lot of problems when I was young. <laughs> Even that to me really highlights some real cultural problems, right? The fact yeah. that there's a word for me when I was a kid, that's basically a compliment, I think tomboy. And there are no words for someone like you as a child that aren't basically violent words. Right. Yeah. And that Scary even just words. really shows yeah. us how we feel about those things and how we classify masculinity and femininity. You can see it just in the language we use with young children about right. how they express themselves. Right. Right. So for me, I was pretty tough kid. You know, I was able to just wear jeans and do what I wanted a lot of the time. My mom and I would fight once in a while about the clothes. Um, but really, she tried to keep from doing that too much. I'm. I very interestingly have a first cousin who is also a transgender man wow. who I was actually named after. My name is Leslie Adrian Lawyer, and my cousin is Les. Leslie also still goes by Les. So my mom had grown up around him and his mom and had seen them just fight and fight and fight and fight about the wearing of dresses and clothes and all that stuff. So she had learned from that that she really didn't want to do that with me. When I came along and was also that way, she really wanted to have a good relationship with me so it wasn't worth it to fight about what I wore every day. But once in a while in the South, she felt really compelled that I had to put on some girl yeah, clothes and go to something. You're very fortunate that your mother was supportive. It was amazing. I mean, she really yeah. did the best that she could without any information. As you know, the word transgender really wasn't brought into popu- popular usage until the 90s. Yeah. So my right. mom didn't have words or information or knowledge about this at all. She thought I was gay. Even as a very young kid, she assumed I must be gay. Yeah. Even at two or three years well, old. Well, I assumed I must be gay. <laughs> right. That's kind of the only framework we have for some of this gender variance, right, is the idea that it must be LG, LGB yeah. or something, right? <laughs> when we didn't have the word trans to even talk about it, how could we think about it? Right. 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 So when did you kind of begin to start living who you were? Well, the interesting thing then for me is that I did come out as gay. My attractions oh, yeah. have always been to women. So yeah. at the time, I was thought of to be a very masculine female, right? At, at 14 or 15, I realized that I was very masculine, that I was only attracted to women. And so the only frame of reference that I could figure out for myself was that I was a, a butch lesbian. So I lived about 20 years of my life as a butch lesbian because I right. couldn't figure out another another way to be in the world. And for me, that was actually my home. I was welcomed and accepted into the lesbian communities and found my place there and was really grateful and glad to be part of it. So for me, it it probably even slowed things down a little bit because I was so identified with being a lesbian that it was hard for me to come all the way around the corner to understanding myself as trans. Yeah, I think that happens to uh, not all of us, but some for me. Being a drag queen in the gay community, which was my home for a long time, I could almost live the life that I wanted, which is to be the the femme person to the masculine man. You know, I could almost, you know, kind of socially be the person I wanted to be. I could wheel my tush at a guy and and they would respond. And it was kind of great, you know. And I think the same thing, it kind of made us, it took the pressure off of, of needing to transition. But at some point I did need to. Me too. Me too. Yeah. And it was that similar. It was very similar. You know, it was, I had found a group of people who actually really appreciated my masculinity. So it wasn't that folks liked me in spite of being masculine. They liked me because I was so masculine, right? So it was finally being validated and affirmed for for the part of myself that felt really important to me, right? Yeah. But in 1996, I finally got my hands on a copy of Les Feinberg's book. So oh, it was okay, Stone Butch yes. Blues, yeah. um, a really amazing you know, absolutely reading for anybody who wants to explore what the what it's like being gender variant. Well, and truly to me, it's a very poignant and very real depiction of especially butch femme, uh, but gay culture just prior to the Stonewall 
riots. So it's a really interesting historical slice, even for people who don't relate to the character. Yeah. I think it's a it's it's well worth it to read it just to understand a little bit of LGBTQ history and what it was like for people in the in the sixties before what we call the modern gay yeah. civil rights movement really began and kicked off. So, yeah. But for me, it was this explosive, incredibly personal, deeply emotional experience of reading a character in a book where I finally saw myself and thought, this is me and I'm not alone. And there are medical treatments that I could seek out that would make this big difference in my life. And I didn't even know they were there. Yeah. So it was the very the first aging, time yeah. I'd heard of anybody using hormone replacement therapy or having what we call top surgery, which for trans men is a mastectomy and a chest reconstruction. I didn't even know that you could have a surgery like that. So for me, it was this incredibly explosive revelation of the path that I would then go on to walk, but didn't even know was there. I didn't even know the path was there. Yeah, you, well, you're a actually a generation younger than me, so uh, the first person that I really kind of identified was Renee Richards. Of course. You know, because uh, uh, what was her name? The first person I forgot. She Christine was, Jorgensen. Christine Jorgensen. Sure. You know, I was only about 12 or something when Christine Jorgensen uh, made the news and I was afraid to read about it. It was just too scary to too think. Too close, right? Yeah, yeah, too close. But then Renee Richards came along about the same time that I was really thinking about I need to do something. So she was very inspiring to me. So role models are amazingly important. Especially when you consider the fact that for me as a young kid, I saw Renee and Christine on things like Donahue. So I I knew even as a child that there were transgender women. But it wasn't until I was in my 20s that I knew there was anybody else like me. So it's just what you just (laughs) said. Even now people don't realize that there are transgender men. But for me, as a transgender man, I didn't know there were transgender men. So how do yeah. you how do you position yourself in the world if you don't know that there are even other people like you? Yeah, that's that's amazing. So we're going to stop now and, and take a break, and we'll be right back. Okay, we're back with Gender Trouble, and we're speaking with Adrian Lawyer, who's from Albuquerque and is the head of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And we were talking about growing up trans and what that means and discovering, because we don't know that that's what we are. We just think that, um, well, for me, I had what I called the freak factor. There is something deeply wrong with me. And I internalized it, and I felt like, how am I going to uh, deal with this? So in me, it produced a lot of anger, Mm -hmm. a lot of frustration. But let's hear from Adrian. Isn't that interesting, too? Because I want so badly to say that it's just getting so much better, and it's so different now. But really, with our young trans kids, that's still what we see overwhelmingly is anger and depression because of how hard it is just to be respected for who you are. Yeah, and is it getting better? And in some ways, yes, it is. But, you know, we've had uh, 24 young people, uh, mostly young people and persons of color that have been killed just this year uh, for being trans, like walking while trans. It's a big deal, and it's not safe being trans. That's right. But also at the same time, we have trans people in the movies now, and there's TV shows about trans people, and of course everybody talks about Caitlyn Jenner uh, coming out, and there's always controversy. But for me, I think it's one of the greatest things that happened because transgender is becoming a household word. That's right. But let's go back, and you were talking about your experience in the lesbian community and how it sort of set you back, which was similar to me. But then what happened when you realized that it wasn't enough and and you needed to go further? So finally, when I read Les Feinberg's book, Stone Butch Blues, I realized that I was a transgender person, that I was a transgender man. And for me, that still took about eight years between that realization and and taking that first step. It was still this terrifying cliff that it felt like you were gonna have to jump off of, you know? And and I felt like not only could I lose my community, I could lose my family, I could lose my friends, my job. What was gonna happen if I ended up taking testosterone or taking hormone replacement therapy? What price might I have to pay to do that? And yeah. the and the and the fear 
of the of the outcomes was enough to keep me from doing what I knew I needed to do for eight more years. Yeah, that happens to a lot of us, yeah. Right? It was just, and I know a lot of, I have a lot of trans family members who talk about, you know, they started and then they stopped and then eight years later they went back and then seven years later they stopped again because it's very hard to find your way with this stuff and people don't want to lose out on their communities and families and at the same time, we have to actualize ourselves. We can't live without doing the things that we do. No, but we could kid ourselves. For me, it was 30 years. And around 1975, I was living full-time as a woman. I was seeing a therapist. I was taking hormones. And I became so isolated and felt like, where am I going to go? How am I going to have a life? And, and I felt the isolation from my community, which was the gay male community. Back then, there was the gay male community and the lesbian community, and they really didn't hang together too much. So I uh, just finally collapsed, and I almost, and this is a, a something that happens with a lot of trans people, they consider... Uh, they consider taking their lives. That's right. And because there's nowhere to go. And I, uh, I did survive, and I went on, but I did spent 30 years trying to be, uh, and most of the people in this town, I was here 25 years, and they know, knew me as a person who was, you know, a churchgoer, uh, above board, and, and every way kind of like a, I don't know, prominent citizen. And, but I realized after my kids left home and, and my business was sold that, I didn't want to die being a man. That's I just right. couldn't. I was just like, why, why even be alive if I was not going to find live who I am? So yeah, that's what happens happened to me. So that was my that was very similar to my experience too. I just got to the point where no price that I could pay for doing it was worse than the price of not doing it. I knew that I had to do it. It was just not even a question. Yeah, there was no more weighing it out. It was just I have to go forward. I cannot spend one more day without moving into this right and for me this was still early on you know when i went in the mid 90s i found that book the internet was still not something that people were using in a in an effective or fun way i remember having a computer that could connect to the internet but it was like you know still where it was like you know yeah. and it was like so slow it was like 1200 bps you know and <laughs> yeah. i was like why are people this is not fun how is this no, fun why no. are people doing this where now like young folks that's where they find all the information on being trans is on the internet yeah and unfortunately but, they don't always find good information <laughs> well that's for sure that's for sure but neither so. do we always find good information from each other you know it's hard you're right, gonna you're gonna right. get good and bad info but at least they can go on and see that they're not alone and that they're not, like you said, kind of an isolated freak feeling person, but that there are lots of trans people doing all different kinds of things out there in the world. And you can find that on the internet, you know? Yeah. So I think for a lot of people, it's at least some hope for me at that time. I felt super isolated. I couldn't yeah. find other people like me. I couldn't find information on what I needed to do. Even in Albuquerque, even in you know 2004, 2005, when I started my medical stuff, I called four or five different numbers that I Googled up and nobody would call me back and nobody answered the phone. And finally, somebody picked up and just said the name of the doctor and just hung up again. Wow. You know, it was just very, very hard to find that information. And where, what town were you in? Albuquerque. Oh, you were in mm -hmm. Albuquerque. Yeah. I've been living there since 1995. Oh, okay. So I've been 20 years in New Mexico and really love it. Yeah, so Albuquerque is not Seattle or it's not San Francisco. <laughs> it's not, it's, but it's also not, you know, Clovis or Patalis or small yeah. towns in Mississippi where I'm from. You know, it's like there's a, it's still a metropolitan area, an urban area where there was even at that time more than one doctor who could provide hormone replacement. Yeah. But I couldn't find the person who could tell me that doctor's name. You know, that was the hard yeah. thing, just finding that stuff, which interestingly really became the genesis of the of the resource center, because even without knowing the information, I knew that my own transition was so scary and so dark and so lonely that people had to be being lost in that moment, that we had to be losing other trans people because they couldn't find the information or couldn't connect. And now we yeah. know that for a fact. The first really 
big study of transgender people was authored in 2011, which to me is shocking enough that there wasn't a really yeah, significant study. Yeah. Exactly. And that study surveyed 6,500 transgender people around the country. And when they published the responses to the survey as a report, the title of the report is Injustice at Every Turn. Yeah. So the first really big study of transgender people is called Injustice at Every Turn. Well, it does happen. I, back in Boston, I, uh, like I said, I was a drag queen. So I had a swollen ankle, and I went to the doctor, and I was told this was a good doctor to go to. And, of course, I had blue nail polish on my toes. And the doctor could not see my swollen foot. I mean, I'm sitting there in front of him, and one is like twice the size of the other, and they go, no, both your feet look great. Yeah, your ankles look great. I don't see a swollen ankle. And he would not. And I kept saying, but it's swollen. And he goes, no, it looks great. I think you're okay. And he would not deal with me just because I had painted toenails. And that (laughs) still is true, right? We still know that lesbian, gay, bisexual, and transgender people are blamed for their health outcomes, that even now nurses and doctors will refuse to touch LGBTQ people, that they will take unnecessary precautions when working with an LGBTQ patient, right? And then our study showed us, this is back to what we were talking about a second ago, that 41% of those surveyed, of the 6,500 people surveyed, 41% admitted to at least one suicide attempt in their lifetime. Or, or at least suicide ideation. No, this was, the question yeah. was, have you attempted oh, okay. yeah. suicide at least one time? That's how the question is worded. Wow. So for some folks, this was multiple attempts. It's not just have you thought about wanting to kill yourself. It's have you applied lethal means to your body? And 41% oh. of our folks said yes to that question. Yeah, that is high. It's I, severe. I, thought it, I didn't realize that. I thought it included simply uh, deeply considering it. But it's also it's actually attempted. Mm-hmm. Wow. And on studies like that, what we know is that it's never the number is never underreported, right? I mean, it's never overreported. Yeah. So people don't check the box who haven't attempted, but yeah. some people who have attempted don't check the box. Yeah. So we right. know that it's more than forty-one percent. That's just who would admit to well, it. Well, it's it's growing up. Uh, when you grow up a trans, you there's nowhere you fit. You know, I mean, I, from my perspective, right, I mean, I'm looking at you and you're, gosh, nobody would know on the street ever. You look like any any guy you would see on the street, rather handsome with your beard and everything. But, <laughs> uh, but yeah, you look like uh, a guy you would see on the street. Whereas if you're a late transitioner, male to female, you're... I mean, I'm six foot two. I don't want to say what I weigh. <laughs> <laughs> Me either. <laughs> and and uh, but you know, I have you know big hands and feet and all that. And I don't get you know uh, red very often. But still, I'm I'm you know bigger than almost every other woman around. And my voice is not particularly uh, feminine or female. So we face that all the time and it's easy to discriminate against us. That's right. That's right. And really that's just human physiology, right? Testosterone does all of this stuff that you see with me, but it also does all of that stuff to my sisters, you know, to my sisters like you. And once you have gone through a forced male puberty, there's a lot of things that estrogen just isn't going to roll back like height and yeah. Adam's apple and voice. You know, we have a, a famous singer, Joe Stevens of Coyote Grace, who's a transgender man and a pretty well-known singer. And he always says in the transgender world, our, our men are short, our women are tall, and everybody's a baritone. <laughs> That's crazy. Right? Because like once that, that voice yeah. has changed, it's changed for all of us. Like yeah, even for me it now. It change back. I could That's take it. all the estrogen in That's the world, it. and it's not going to do anything to my voice. And, and it doesn't do anything to my... Height. Facial hair. Right. I had to spend hours and hours and hours of incredible pain. I used to tell my uh, electrolysis that, you know, you could 
I would confess anything to him. If she asked me anything, I would probably confess because, <laughs> I mean, that's torture. I mean, you know, the average face, I think, is thirty or 40,000 hairs or something like that. Right. And, and everyone hurts to have it removed. It's time, it's pain, and it's a lot of money. But, you right? know... Yeah, but I don't know a trans woman who wouldn't do it. <laughs> exactly. I mean, that's but we already touched on this earlier. You know, the, a lot of the folks that we work with at our center, they would love to do it, and they can't access it because of the expense and because of the because of the inability to find good employment. So a lot of folks who would like some of these treatments aren't able to to get them. Yeah. So uh, we're going to take a break here again, and we'll be back shortly. Okay, we're back with Gender Trouble, and we're talking with Adrian Lawyer from Albuquerque, who is head of the Transgender Resource Center, and we've been talking about growing up trans, and uh, and Adrian is talking about how, in the in even as late as uh, 2004 and 2005, it was very difficult to find any support, uh, especially out in like the in the Southwest, where it's not Seattle or San Francisco, how do you get support? How do you find a doctor that actually understands what we need and how to uh, give us the medical attention that we need? So, Adrian, uh, can you continue on from uh, where you were? So Uh, for us, I mean, that's one of the main reasons that we do so much training, right, is that even now we're training clinicians and providers, law enforcement, all different groups, so many different groups, to just understand a little bit about what being transgender even means and that transgender people exist and some of what we need. And in New Mexico, we find that that's still an overwhelming need all over our state is to get more and more people trained up to be able to do a good job with our folks. Yeah, that's so necessary. Uh, In Seattle, they had a provider's program that uh, they had about 100 people that were involved in it that were professionals, providers in medical and in therapy and so on. Um, You know, for me, I had to find a a doctor that was willing to learn. Mm -hmm. And I found a doctor in Benson, actually a physician's assistant, in Benson, Arizona, and I approached her, and I we talked about, and I gave her information from the World Association of World Professional Association of Transgender Health, and we looked at the guidelines and went over the guidelines, and we created our own regimen that would work for me. But I had to be able to do it. But there's a lot of trans people that are not able to do that. Uh, they just don't have the. Um, well, the background or the training or the wherewithal to do that. So what you're doing is helping so many people who, especially people who are not educated, they just find themselves having to deal with something and they don't know where to go or what to do. And I'm really grateful that you're doing this program. It's interesting, too, because I think there's so many brave pioneers in our family, in our big transgender family like you, who say I had to go and teach my doctor how to treat me, you know, what an amazing, brave thing. What, how, what kind of poise does it take to have to teach a medical provider how to be a provider to you? When you're in a setting like that, you're already in a power dynamic. You are already in there seeking something from someone who either can or cannot provide it, right? So it's amazing to me how many of us have done that, but we never should have to. Right. Right. We no. should never have to be the ones who advocate for ourselves in a healthcare setting that way. This should be taught to medical students. Well, when I went through my counseling program, there was one paragraph in our textbooks about transgender. I mean, one paragraph. And there wasn't that much more about uh, the uh, the lesbian gay community either, sure. but uh, there was more than the uh, in tra- the tra- one. Pa- I even I talked to my professor about this. And there's only one paragraph here, and I can't <laughs> help but wonder what it said. You know, like a lot of times, it, then it paints it out to be some type of a mental health issue or a paraphilia or something where it's not just 
that this is a way that people are, right? Yeah. Well, I was fortunate because Western New Mexico University is a pretty good school, and my professor was very supportive and allowed me, actually, to teach Transgender 101 mm. to the other students there. So that was... Uh, which is amazing, right? And that's how all of us are doing this really incredible work. And once again, it shouldn't be that way, right? Like, it shouldn't be that the the classrooms who ask for a 101 get it and those students get it, but all the rest don't. I think about the different universities and schools where I get to go and present all over the state. And then I think about the how that's really just such a very small percentage of the people in those programs. So we're, it's yeah. still very much like throwing darts, <laughs> you know, at a bit, at what really what should we should we should be blanketing. You know, nobody should be able to become a licensed counselor without at least the 101, and that's the minimum. The transgender right. 101 is called that because it's the most basic information, right? This is not an in-depth course on transgender issues. This is the beginner course. This is the just to get you started. Yeah, I know somebody uh, here who was seeking out a therapist, and when the therapist discovered the person was transgender, the therapist just simply said, I can't help you with this. I've heard so many stories like that. I've heard so many stories like that. And other things that I would think a mental health provider would never do. Like I've had folks in Albuquerque come and tell me that they went to see a counselor and they walked in and said, you know, I, I believe I'm transgender. That's why I'm here. I want to talk this out. And the, and the therapist said, I don't think so. I don't think you are. It's like, <laughs> I, you just I invalidated somebody, me yeah, uh, when I just came in here to talk to you. Right. Yeah, and how uh, much bravery, how much courage did it take for me to come in here and admit that to you? And the first thing out of your mouth as a counselor was to invalidate what I just said as an yeah. adult person. Yeah, I know actually somebody personally who that happened to, believe it or not, in Seattle, who went to a therapist and uh, had a place who was supposed to have been trans-supportive, but it was an intern, and the intern said, well, you don't seem to be transgender to me. And the person came home and was absolutely defeated. Well, what indicators would you even be using? I didn't ask you to evaluate whether I'm transgender. I asked you to help me because I just told you I'm transgender. Yeah. You know? It's, a, it's, a, it's such an interesting thing. It's like, I think there's a lot of compelling discussion right now in our movement around whether we should be most closely aligned with disability rights and disability justice instead of identity. And I think there's something to that because we're talking about access and we're talking about being invalidated as a group so much of the time. Yeah, well, it's a, there's a debate kind of in the trans community. I think even outside the trans community, is our issue a medical issue or is it a mental health issue? And do we need mental health counseling? And if we become diagnosed, you know, like I'm diagnosed as having gender identity disorder, and with having a diagnosis like that, then I could get some type of coverage for my uh, having seeing a therapist or even medical coverage because a therapist can uh, recommend that I have certain medical treatments. But if we don't have that diagnosis, then we're, we're just simply, it's a medical issue because I believe it is a medical issue. Mm -hmm. I was born with the wrong genitalia and I just needed that corrected. But we want to get coverage then, and where would the uh, money come from to do these things? So it's, it's something that in the, in the transgender community is being debated a lot. Well, intriguingly, I think with my generation, we're, we all feel pretty clear that it's not a mental health issue. But we also understand that we live in one of the last developed countries that still operates under an insurance system. Like there's very few... Yeah. countries in the global north that use insurance the way we do. So when you have an insurance system that's basically oppressing everybody, you have to have a pathway through that system. And that for us is the gender dysphoria diagnosis, which is psychiatric in nature. Yes, and right. for our communities, it feels like at least we have something that can be used as a code to bill for some of these treatments instead of there being nothing. Yeah, well, but it the, is a tricky, it's a slippery slope. It is, because the downside of having a diagnosable uh, disorder or a dysphoria, that's, then it could come back later on in, in, in applying for work or say you need uh, some kind of uh, government clearance or something like that, you'll be turned down. 
right? Because you have a mental illness. Exactly. And I'm Plus, quite, I think it's I, I think it's collectively <laughs> hard on our self worth, which is already problematic, right? Right. We already have a hard time feeling like whole human beings because of the stigma, and because right. of the misunderstandings that we endure so much of, right? So I think having to willingly go and seek a mental health diagnosis when you don't feel that there's anything wrong with your mental health is also hard on your self-image. Growing up trans, there's a lot of, I call it associated problems that occur in mental health. They call it comorbidity, but Mm -hmm. it's that we could have PTSD, for instance, caused by being trans and having to face constant threat of violence or constant rejection in your family, for instance, or all kinds of things create a situation where our coping mechanisms may not be the best. And so we do have a lot of associative problems where generally trans people are recommended very strongly to try to talk it out with a therapist, and I recommend it, that it would be good instead of just going cold, just kind of air what's happening and uh, and try to get a clear view of what it is that a person actually wants. Well, and I don't think that I realized, you know, when I started on to testosterone, nobody told me, even, even my endocrinologist didn't really know and didn't explain to me that I would be going back through puberty. So, like, I knew I right. would get a beard. You know, I had read up enough to know some of the physical things that would happen from testosterone that I really wanted, but I did not understand that I would have psychological and emotional and developmental male puberty at basically 35 years old. Yes. And that is what I went through. And I didn't have a counselor at that time or a therapist at that time. And when I look back, I wish I would have just had a little additional support for what was really a roller coaster ride that I didn't even know I was on. Yeah, that's one of the problems of uh, what we call late transitioners, people that are transitioning long after they've had secondary sex characteristics. And so now with young people, because I'm similar to Adrian, I uh, knew at a very young age, in fact, I actually was able to live as, as a girl my first six years. And then a stepfather came along and said, no, we're going to turn this, turn me into a man. Mm. And it was then embarked on a pretty horrendous, I call it aversion therapy. (laughs) But now they have with uh, young people that know they're trans, and they do know they're trans. They might not have words for anything, but when you have somebody who's been signed male at birth, but they don't want to wear pants, they want to wear dresses, they want to play with the girls, they want dolls, and you have boys that want to play sports and and be rough and tumble and, and so on. They know, and so... Now therapists or many therapists are are allowing the child when they start approaching puberty to take puberty blockers, which is very controversial. Uh, And you wonder why it is, because if a child has, and I forget what you call it, uh, it's uh, premature. Precocious puberty. Precocious Mm -hmm. puberty. Because sometimes even at the age of five, six, seven, they could start developing well, the doctors are very quick to prescribe uh, puberty blockers for them. But if a child is transgender and, and uh, they're going to go into adolescence and start uh, having secondary sex characteristics, then it's, and a lot of doctors will say, well, we can't prescribe puberty blockers. And so it's really a transphobic approach. Absolutely. One, Do you know they, that even the yeah. American Academy of Pediatrics <clears throat> has now released a statement that says that we know our gender identity by the age of four. Yeah. And that's not specific to trans or not trans. All of us know our gender by the age of four. But with trans kids, we say, you're too young, you don't know. Right. But we do know. We yeah. know the same as everybody else. Right. And very few of these trans kids have actually changed or changed their mind. They they know and they... That's right. I know when I was uh, studying uh, child and adolescent development. Well, I'll tell you what, we're going to take a break and we'll come back to this because it's an exciting uh, discussion and, and I'm glad we're having it. So we'll be right back. 
Okay, we're back with Gender Trouble, and we're speaking with Adrian Laurier from Albuquerque, who is head of the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And we were having a very uh, interesting topic. We're talking about puberty blockers for young people and, uh, and why it's so important that trans youth have puberty blockers uh, to avoid those, the secondary sex characteristic. Adrian uh, was talking a little bit about that. So, Adrian, continue. I just think about, I think a lot about when you have an individual person that you know who's been through these experiences, I think it really grounds it for you. And for us, we have a young friend in Albuquerque that we've been following and helping and knowing since she was about nine years old, a young trans woman who's about to go off to college in the fall now. And her mother was very fierce and protective of her and helped her to get that treatment, the puberty blockers, and then start her cross-sex hormone replacement therapy at around 16. And because of that, you're right that she didn't develop some of these secondary sex characteristics that are more masculine, which I think helped her immensely. And because of that, she, throughout her high school career, was on the dean's list. She played the violin. She was in chess club. She's going on to college. And I think about my own my own first puberty, my female puberty that I was forced through. And even though I'm a person who has never attempted suicide in all of my life, at that age, that's when I most strongly thought about it. So when my first puberty began, that's when I felt like I wanted to die because I knew my body was going to go in a direction that I couldn't stop it, that I knew wasn't right for me. So I think about all of our young people and how they must be going through that and how these blockers make such a big difference for people's ability to function and actualize themselves even in adolescence, which is already a hard time for anybody. Yeah, we get betrayed by our bodies. That's, That's right. what I call it, cognitive dissonance. That's right. I'm growing up, and I, and I feel that I'm... I didn't know if I actually said I'm a girl. I just knew I wasn't a guy. I played, you know, knew all kinds of guys. I played with guys, tried to do sports, everything. And I knew I wasn't a guy. I knew I wasn't going to be a man. But everybody around me kept saying, no, I'm a boy. And my own body betrayed me. And that's kind of when I started going downhill and barely made it out of high school because I was just like I didn't know where to go. And I felt betrayed by everybody. And that's when I developed a very deep freak factor. Mm. Something's deeply wrong with me. And it took me most of my life to find a way out of that. And mm. so so puberty blockers is, is a necessary thing. And it, the thing that I was mentioning is the medical establishment, a lot of people in the medical establishment still has a problem with puberty blockers for trans youth. Like I said before, if if a child has premature development, then they get assigned puberty blockers right away. Nobody even questions it. Oh, you need puberty blockers. But if it's a trans youth who's really worried about their body betraying them to not be developing the way they would like it to be, it becomes a huge debate. Mm. Well, can we allow this person to be the person they feel they are? It's sort of like... I know better than somebody else what they are. It's like we don't respect gender. We don't respect a person's identity, in this case, gender identity. And the interesting thing about that to me is, is as you said before, it feels very transphobic because in all of my reading and research on this topic, I have not seen what the what the contraindication of puberty blockers is supposed to be. It's not that this medication could harm these young people. It's not that it has some horrible side effect that we could be subjecting them to, right? When they take the blockers, if that young person goes through some type of counseling and decides, you know what, I'm really not transgender, then you just discontinue the blockers and the puberty begins. So I don't even understand what we're trying to keep these young people from by not allowing them this treatment that would buy them some precious time. Yeah, and like you say, I have not heard of any 
contraindications. There's I no heard reproductive of, repercussions know. from it. The main thing I've heard is that there can be a height differential. So a, a, a young person who might have grown to be six feet tall might not grow to, but to 5'10 if they're given the blockers. So there's some places in which they think that there's a height differential. But other than that, there's no long-term safety precautions that we're talking about here. Yeah. We're just talking about keeping people from being able to access what, for us, we know can be a life-saving medication. And what's the rush? It's sort of like, uh, I'm going to throw this out, kids that are born intersex, which means they have ambiguous genitalia. They immediately want to get in there and try to fix their genitalia so they could either be a boy or a girl. But what is the rush? What is the rush that we want kids to be able to pick their gender right away? And uh, whether they're born intersex or whether they're transgender, why do we need them to? Can't we just wait? And that's an interesting, I, I just find that interesting that people are so concerned that they have to know uh, what somebody's gender is going to be. That's right. And for intersex activists, for the human beings who have actually been subjected to those kinds of um, procedures, they don't come back and thank everybody for doing that to them. You know, yeah. most folks grow up and say, why did you hurt my body when I was a baby? Why did you do this to me? It's really for society's comfort, not for that person. Right. And and it's uh, and so they do the same for trans children growing up. You have a trans child who is showing cross-gender uh, behavior, and people try to correct it. Like in the old days, they used to correct left-handedness. They would That's tie right. the left hand next to the body because it was somehow sinful to be left-handedness. Now what we're doing is if a child is, is demonstrating that uh, if if they're born with male genitalia, but demonstrating that they're really interested in, in uh, acting out nurturing play or acting out being even artistic or colorful or whatever, they get punished for that, actually. And Or if it's the other way around, they're acting out. They're a young girl wants to be on a football team or whatever. They're told, no, you can't do that. When really, interestingly, you know, we are... We are creating gender norms and expectations, and we know that because there, I have not yet heard of one single universal about this, right? That a garment that in our country we call a skirt in Scotland is a kilt and is worn by men, but men in the United States would not wear a kilt because it's a skirt and it's for women, <laughs> right? There yeah. are societies, human societies, where women controlled all of the trade and commerce. There are human societies where men exclusively tended to the children. Like, these are not encoded things. They're constructed no. by us. No, gender is a socialization, and it's socially constructed, but yet we feel like somehow... It's the way nature intended. But that's so, there's so many ways that that is not, it's been shown that it's not true. I think and, even uh, in my generation, at 45 years old, I am a very participatory parent to my child. And I was um, home with him when he was younger a lot and took him to the park and was with him as a young child. And I saw a lot of other dads at the park. I was not the only man who was responsible for my kid during the day and playing with him at a park in that way, the way you would always used to see moms at the park with the kids. Yeah. Now, when I was taking my kid to the park as a dad, I was not the only man doing that. So in our culture, we're even finding that men want to step up to those types of nurturing roles, right? So why is it that we would not allow young kids to practice and play at those activities? Yeah, it's one of the difficulties of, well, that's social construction, what we're it talking is. about. So, gosh, there's so many things we could talk about, and, and I don't know where to go, but I do want to get back then to, let's get back to the uh, Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico, and let's talk a little bit about that, because I know there are, what is it, approximately one in 300, one in 350 people are born trans, approximately, that, that figure gets bandied about, and at one time, the Diagnostic Statistical Manual said that for transgender women, it was one in 30,000, and for transgender men, it was one in 
100,000. And that was fairly recently. Like, that was in the DSM-4TR, you know. So you get amazed. But now, with a lot of the uh, surveys that have been going out, there's been surveys in Europe and surveys everywhere. The figures are becoming closer to 1 in 350, but some of the working figures are still 1 in 2,000, and but are 0.02, and that's about three, 1 in 350, I guess. So we don't know exactly. And in fact, to me, this is one of the best sort of vivid representations of, of our marginalization in the United States, right? That the biggest demographic tools we have, things like the census have no way for me to identify myself as a transgender person on that survey. Right. So then the truth is, any one of these numbers is just made up. They're all made up, and they almost always make us seem like there are less trans people than I know that there really are, because we're not really counting trans people. So any numbers that we give, I believe, are dramatically lower than the truth. And we won't know that until we start to care enough to count us up with everybody else. Right, right. right. And so... But, you know, if you think about it, if there's maybe 750,000 trans people in the U.S., that's a huge number of people. And what I find interesting, no matter where a person grows up, right, if a person is trans, they're going to deal with it. They might have to leave their small town and move to a city or no matter where it comes out. And people used to say, or a lot of people say, well, we need to do something about trans people and gay people. Well, the only way to solve it is for heterosexual people not to breed. <laughs> I mean, because you could, you could try to destroy all the trans people and all the gay people, but the next generation, you'll have just as many. That's right. Since what we're talking about is really a normal human variation. Right. The number that I've recently heard is that they they think there may be as many transgender people as redheaded people. Wow. So being redheaded is a normal human variation, but it only occurs about two percent of the time. But it's not an abnormality. It's not a problem. It's just a way that humans come, but is not the majority. But doesn't it amaze you that even redheads get teased and and are considered, they get attacked for being a ginger. That's exactly right. And And left-handedness, I actually (laughs) used the example of left-handedness in our Transgender 101 talk. Because left-handedness is a good example of something where we've had social stigma on, again, a normal human variation But we oppressed folks who were left-handed, and now we don't. So it shows us, again, that we can can shift the way we perceive and treat people based on these minority traits. We don't have to stay mad and violent towards a group of people. Left-handed people will tell you there still are living left-handed people who were horribly punished for being left-handed, just oh, like yeah. you said. It was as recent as in the 60s. That's right. And that's not that long ago that children were punished for being left-handed. So we have only a few minutes left, and I, I would like you to start giving us some numbers and talk about how, what people could do, how they can contact you. Absolutely. If folks out there are transgender, or if you're the family or friend of a transgender person and need any kind of help or assistance, we definitely hope that you will contact us at TGRCNM at the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. Our main phone number is 505-200-9086, and our website is www.tgrcnm.org. We'd love to hear from you. Yeah, thank you very much. And we have been speaking with Adrian Lawyer from the Transgender Resource Center of New Mexico. And we've had a very exciting uh, conversation. And I'm looking forward to having Adrian Lawyer join us again on Gender Trouble. Thanks thank so you much, for listening. Susan. Thank yeah. you.